I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good start. Uh, so, so this is a really, really interesting book, and it is about, and we'll come on to these things, many of the things that you'd expect us to talk about tonight, so we will get on to Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, Vladimir Putin, Russian bots. Um, but it starts with something that people may be much less familiar with. So it starts with an account of a site called 4chan, which may be much less well known. Um, and I just want to start with that, because it is a very given the terrain. It's a really interesting place to start. So just tell people who may not know anything about 4chan what 4chan is and why this story starts there for you. Uh, yes. Um, uh, before I start that, perhaps I should sort of preface it by, by explaining why I think it's important um, and why I think it's particularly um, was particularly influential. Um, two reasons, really. One of which was because I think you can't understand some of the distortion and gaming of the U.S. 2016 election without understanding the history of um, 4chan and the communities around 4chan. Uh, and secondly, because the methods and approaches that they used, uh, they then exported and others then adopted for use in lots of other countries in the world, including around Europe. So, what is 4chan? Um, 4chan is what's called an image board, which is very similar to a bulletin board. I don't know whether anyone here has used a bulletin board where you post... A bulletin board, you post comments on a web. It's very simple. Bulletin boards really started back in the 1980s. Um, And uh, an image board is like a bulletin board, uh, a normal text bulletin board, except you post images rather than text. Um, And this particular one was started uh, back in 2003, 4chan, um, by a 15-year-old man, um, anyone who's seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he looks like kind of a cross between Ferris Bueller and his friend Cameron Crowe, a uh, 15-year-old man, literally in his bedroom, um, who had seen a site in Japan called 2chan, um, and he wanted to make it doubly as good. Um, uh, but what he was fascinated about with the site in Japan was that it was an image board, um, uh, uh, but it was structured in such a way that it was incredibly fast-moving. Um, so the way that it works, you post an image on the site, one of the various different bulletin boards, um, and then uh, pretty much as soon as you've posted it, as soon as someone posts something else, your post drops down. And then the next, it drops down and one further when the next post goes on, etc., etc. Um, and uh, one study calculated that the average post stays on that page for about five seconds 
and on the site itself for about five minutes. So it's incredibly fast um, how it goes through. And the people posting these images are entirely anonymous. So not pseudonymous, you know, you don't, you don't adopt a particular uh, name. You go on the site and you have the option of choosing to be uh, anonymous, which most people do, and then you get nom- given a, um, uh, a randomly allocated uh, number. Um, and so the, the, for this reason, um, the only way that you could, you have, oh, sorry, I should have said that the only way your post, um, your, your, your image or your post goes back up is if someone comments on it. So if you provoke a reaction, um, it's not like a, a, a retweet or a like or a share or anything like that. It has to be a comment. So you have to provoke a substantive reaction in someone. And so as a consequence of this, if you want to have any longevity on the site at all, you have to post something highly provocative or highly engaging or highly entertaining. Um, and only then will other people start um, uh, posting on it and start commenting on it and start, and then it'll, it'll stay on the site for much, much longer. And that's really the objective of most of the community is to keep something on there for as long as possible so as to make it as provocative as possible. But also, because it's anonymous, um, people don't really have any uh, problems of ownership. So they're not trying to say, this is, this is my um, uh, image or you know, this, I created this. Once it's up there, it, it's, it's divorced from that individual, essentially, because, because they're entirely anonymous. Um, and so other people contribute and other people contribute. And what um, the, uh, the originator, Chris Poole, uh, he used to joke about 4chan that 4chan is basically a post of a repost of a repost of a repost. It's like a, a Darwinian evolution of, of an image because each time someone comments on the image, they, they suggest a new uh, uh, slogan for it or they suggest a new way to morph the image or they suggest it to... And so what is essentially emerged was what has subsequently been called a meme factory. Is everyone familiar with the term meme? So the Richard Dawkins came up with in 1976, but now comes to refer to images on the web that often have a slogan attached, uh, like, a, like, a, like a motivational poster or something. Um, but these particular images and these slogans um, uh, uh, were made more and more provocative and more and more compelling by the fact that they were going through this astonishing kind of a, a Darwinian process of evolution. Um, uh, and actually, um, when you look at you know, fast forward um, uh, uh, 15 years, and I, I, I should explain how they get involved in the whole 2016 yeah. campaign. But. So, but then, just to say one other thing, so you start with that, and you can probably see at least some connection with politics now. It's a meme factory, it's also a shock factory, it's an attention-grabbing factory. But the example that you give is not the obvious one, so you don't start with Trump, you don't start with Brexit, you start with German politics. So just say a little bit about that as well. So the alternative for Deutschland, the the populist far-right party in Germany, they are the ones who exploit this, this way of communicating. And not just in Germany. Uh, so, so what you find on um, uh, sub-channels like, uh, chat channels like Discord and elsewhere in Germany before the 2017 election um, is you find um, a whole community. I think there, uh, on one particular board there were about 5,000 people on a particular board called Reconquista Germania who are um, sharing memes, who are dis- uh, building up repositories, so, so sort of um, uh, uh, hordes of, of memes, effective memes that they know have worked elsewhere, particularly in the US. Um, they're um, uh, discussing which particular issues and which particular politicians to target uh, in the lead-up to the election. And then in the month before the election, they declare a, a meme jihad on, on the um, established parties. Uh, and they, they effectively declare war as well on the mainstream media in Germany. 
And then they start um, doing what they did pretty much exactly in the American election, and they've done elections since then as well, which is to try to um, uh, uh, cause as much disruption, cause as much damage, cause as much outrage in the uh, online public sphere as they possibly can. Uh, and that includes um, uh, taking down particularly female politicians by um, uh, uh, coordinating collective action at speed to, to effectively lynch and, and, and harass individual politicians. Uh, it means um, uh, creating synthetic popularity, so, so making sure that particular YouTube videos or particular um, tweets have much, much more popularity than they would otherwise, which of course then gains the attention of mainstream media. You think, oh, this is popular. You know, we ought to um, take notice of this. We ought to, and then it becomes a mainstream media story. And so, so they try to uh, uh, hijack the agenda. They try and take down their enemies and their opponents, uh, and, and generally try and cause distress um, uh, in the uh, and, and, and anger in the public sphere. And, and in the U.S. case, the probably the best known example of this is a philosophy of news and communication is Breitbart. I mean, would you say Breitbart is, as we're learning from this as a model for how you generate attention and news? Well, what's amazing in, in the American context, because if you look at the 4chan community, certainly before 2008, um, and even really uh, after 2011, um, it's incredibly dispersed. So we're not talking about, um, uh, there's, there's very little cohesion. I mean, why would there be? They're anonymous. Um, uh, so, so um, research that's attempted to be done suggests you know you have every political persuasion: neoconservatives, paleoconservatives, uh, what's called the manosphere. Uh, this this hugely dispersed group who have very little interest in traditional politics at, at all. In fact, they they often think traditional politics is is for what they call cause fags, and, and, and they have various other names they call them. Um, and so they they ignore it. But what was remarkable in in, in uh, the lead-up to the U.S. election, was that um, Steve Bannon and Breitbart made a very, very conscious effort to coax them in to the, the campaign, to bring them in to the actual U.S. election campaign. And they did this in two ways. The, the, first of all, um, and I won't go into the, the, the intricacies of this awful uh, incident called Gamergate, um, but first of all, after this nasty, nasty vitriolic battle around game, uh, video game journalism. Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, a name some of you might be familiar with, uh, uh, sought to, to, to bring in uh, what he called the kind of uh, the Chan Collective, the 4chaners, the 8chaners, the, um, uh, the, the, the Redditors, um, people who, who post on the, the board Reddit. And then the following year, they launched, Breitbart launched a whole um, section called Breitbart Tech, where they very consciously um, said, we represent you. We represent the, the, the 4chan, the 8chan, the Redditors who are uh, under threat from uh, the social justice warriors, the free speech Nazis. The, um, you know, so so they, 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 they portrayed the, battle, the forthcoming battle of the U.S. election as a culture war. And they said, if you don't participate on our side in the culture war, uh, then they will destroy your community. They will destroy your ability to post anonymously. Or they will destroy... Uh, and so what they were doing, essentially, was they were bringing in these incredibly uh, 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 deliberately, destruct, this deliberately destructive community um, to a democratic campaign. Uh, uh, really, Steve Bannon was, was, was very aware of what he was doing, really to, to cause as much damage and, and to do as much, um, to, to, to undermine the kind of traditional processes as much as possible. 
and they won. Um, so that's one side of it. So what your book does, and what's so interesting about this book, is it goes way beyond the usual stories that many of us are familiar with and pieces together a much more complicated picture. So you've got this kind of, that's almost to start with an organic bottom-up and in some sense democratic version of this kind of politics. And then at the other end of the scale, not just Bannon, but the people behind Bannon, you've got the kind of, I think you call it the plutocratic model, where you've got billionaires um, manipulating exactly the same technology. So we've done 4chan. Tell us about the Mercers. Who are the Mercers and and what, what did they... Contribute to American um, politics. Well, I try and take something different than you already know, because there's obviously an awful lot been written about um, uh, Cambridge Analytica and, um, and and aspects of the Mercers. The Mercers, really, being Robert and his daughter Rebecca, who are the two key. Just say a little um, bit about them, people who don't know. They've, apart from the fact they're billionaires. So Robert Mercer um, spent most of his career in computer science and computing. Uh, uh, he was considered to be kind of a genius in computing. Um, he was uh, worked for IBM from in the 1970s and 1980s, and then was recruited by uh, a company called Renaissance Technologies, which is a financial company, but it did finance in a very, very different way than most other finance companies. Uh, this is way back in, in 1991, 92. So this is before the whole discussions around big data and stuff. But essentially, what the company did was it took a very purist attitude to investment. It took in hu- collected huge amounts of data from around the world about everything from. Um, from, from people to weather patterns um, to, to economic indicators uh, and put them in an enormous pot and then looked for patterns and tried to understand uh, where there were patterns. Even if they were as, as, as crazy as, you know, five minutes before the stock market opens, if it's raining, then it will open down, you know, at least you know, a point or whatever. And then they would make uh, uh, trades on the basis of, of those patterns. And so Mercer did this and made a huge amount of money um, between 91 and when he became the chief executive in... 2008 9. Um, uh, and uh, he, uh, and it would appear his daughter, um, uh, had, had uh, I don't know whether to call it eccentric, but I mean, a very, very radical right wing libertarian perspective, political perspective. Um, uh, 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 some, some, you know, which is, I suppose, similar to, to what we think of as the US right libertarians like the Koch brothers, um, others of which were more. Um, Slightly more outlandish. Um, uh, uh, he was a, one, of, one of the other fans of the gold standard. He's uh, obsessed by the gold standard. Um, but essentially, what he decided to do from uh, really 2011 onwards was to use a lot of his money and some of his methods and some of his knowledge that he developed uh, to do everything he could to, well, um, as one journalist called it, to, to sort of blow up the system, to be. Uh, as destructive as he possibly could of the existing establishment and the existing political system, which is in, in some ways where the join comes between, um, uh, between him and his daughter and the four channels and indeed Vladimir Putin, um, which, is, which is they all shared this, this absolute commitment to, to doing as much damage to the existing system as they possibly could. Um, and he did it, and, and this, everyone, everyone knows about his investment, or most people know about his investment in Cambridge Analytica, but he did it um, through, as you kind of expect from a financier, he, he had a portfolio of investments. So he, the first investment he made, which was probably actually the most influential, was in 2011 when he invested uh, $10 million in Breitbart, um, which at the time was, was not much more than a... Um, uh, a relatively popular a blog, a little bit like the kind of Match Judge, Match Judge Report. Or, um, but he invested 10 million in, in 2011 and then, and then uh, more money beyond that. 
And by the time you get to um, late 2015, early 2016, Breitbart um, has become sort of the nexus of the right-wing media. I mean, it's astonishing when you look at sort of um, the number of people linking from Facebook and from, from uh, Twitter and from elsewhere um, uh, to Breitbart. It's more than any other center-right or right-wing outlet. Um, the only ones that challenge it really are kind of the New York Times and the Washington Post in the le- on the left. Um, so he invests in Breitbart. He invests in um, two other, makes two other investments, which I can, which I can talk to, but perhaps we haven't time. Uh, one in something called the Media Research Center, which is essentially its whole purpose is to um, delegitimize mainstream media. Um, and another one is the Government Accountability Institute, um, which is a an operation whose entire focus is to spend two years investigating the Clintons in order to dig up as much dirt as possible um, about um, particularly the Clinton Foundation um, uh, to, uh, to use against them during the course of the campaign. Um, and then, of course, famously, he makes his investment in Cambridge Analytica, uh, which again, I think, has been slightly misunderstood in terms of its impact and its implications. Maybe we'll say a little bit more. People might want to know more about Cambridge Analytica, but just to fill in the, the jigsaw, because as you said, the other great disruptor then... You, so you have kind of the bottom-up version of it. You have the crazy billionaire version of it. Well, not crazy, but billionaire version of it. And then you have the Putin version of it. The, the, the people who between them want to blow the whole thing up. So how does the Putin version differ from these other two? Well, I mean, so by background, I'm a historian, like you. So I so I um, spend an awful lot of time looking at... Uh, 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 20th century um, history and particularly the history of the Cold War and what struck me early on about what um, Putin and Russia seemed to be doing was how many similarities there were with, with some of the activities uh, that the Russians and the Soviet Union was doing during the Cold War and uh, then I started looking a little bit more closely at some of the memoirs of some of those who had been part of either uh, the KGB or particularly the satellites of the KGB in Eastern Europe and what they've been doing in terms of active measures and in terms of um, uh, disinformation uh, and the techniques that they were using and the techniques that Russia more recently has been using were incredibly similar uh, incredibly similar there's a, there's a, uh, a, a particular uh, 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 very interesting man called Ladislav Bittman who records how he worked in the Czech disinformation factory um, for many years and planted hundreds hundreds of stories or tried to publish uh, plant hundreds of stories in the, uh, the Western media, um, uh, false stories and misleading stories and distorted stories, and particularly divisive stories. So, so very much looking to divide uh, Western politics, to show Western politics to be dysfunctional. Um, this is during the Cold War. This is in the 1960s, in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at, and then you look at um, Putin himself, uh, who, from his teenage years, was desperate, desperate to be in the KGB. And... Uh, tried to join in 1968, um, even before he went to university. Um, so I'll go off and, uh, uh, and study first and then come back. Um, and he, he joined in 74, and he um, was in the KGB during the period, the uh, Yuri Andropov period, um, uh, in the late 60s, 70s, or, or he was in the 70s and then in the early 80s, where they were at their most active in terms of intervening in trying to intervene in foreign elections, trying to intervene in foreign politics, trying to disrupt foreign politics, um, uh, what Mark Galliotti calls now the sort of guerrilla geopolitics, recognizing that they are much uh, weaker economically and much weaker in terms of lots of other factors and therefore 
seeing the world as this zero-sum game, the way to, um, uh, uh, to sort of undermine Western politics and therefore, in their minds, raise up Soviet or Russian politics is to do as much disruption and um, uh, to cause as much uh, 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 damage to their system as you can through the use of disinformation. Um, and then when you follow that path through and you see some of the techniques they're using, the difference being, of course, the difference being back then it was really hard. It was really hard to get false stories out and misleading stories out. I mean, they, they set up a whole newspaper in India in 1962 called The Patriot. Um, uh, and, and it was you know, vaguely useful, but of course, getting it from there to a you know, British outlet, an American outlet. Um, so, but now... Fantastic. You look at what the Internet Research Agency was doing from St. Petersburg, and they have, not only do they have these huge platforms, Facebook and Google and elsewhere, to put them out on, um, they had you know, these, these incredible sources of intelligence that they'd never had before in terms of what people were reading, what was popular, what was... And so they could, they could do what they'd previously tried to do, but so much easier, so much cheaper, and so much... Um, well, you know, if you take one perspective, so much more successfully. One of the things that comes out of this is the election of Donald Trump. But the other thing that your book does is it shows this is a global phenomenon. So this is not just... So you give the example of Duterte in the Philippines. The same, the same kind of politics, the same kind of disinformation, the same kind of disruption, same kind of politician, same kind of result. It's happening... So we, we tend to think there's this thing called Brexit, this thing called Trump, and, and there's this thing called Cambridge Analytica, and somehow there's this little tight nexus of... Um, what holds those things together. But this is happening everywhere. Right? Everywhere, across everywhere. the world. I mean, I think the... Uh, well, certainly what we've seen, it seems to me as though um, 2011 was a really, really important year, particularly for autocratic regimes, uh, in the sense that many, particularly Russia, um, authoritarian regimes saw what happened in 2011 with the Arab Spring, and the message they took from it was um, this: these systems... Um, Facebook and various other systems, the new communication systems were incredibly disruptive of politics. And we have to defend mm. our regimes and we have to work out new methods to strengthen our regimes if we're going to survive these new communication systems. Um, whereas most of us, most of we, particularly uh, in the US and elsewhere, said, hooray, look, these systems are disrupting autocracies. What well, they didn't realize, but the, you know, these communication systems we now have, these transnational communication systems, are disruptive of all established politics, whether that's you know, autocracies, democracies, you name it. They are by their nature, and hence why they favor, or at least to, up to date, they favor those who want to, do, who want to be as disruptive and, and, and as destructive as possible um, because they are, they are perfectly geared for, for, for that. Um, and so, so they've had the most success, and only, I think, really since 2016 have people started to realize that this is this affects all of because it's almost my memory of it. It's almost as the Arab Spring was a moment where many people in the West thought that this was the culmination of something that had been predicted in the 1990s, but hadn't quite happened. Which is that this technology is inherently democratic. It inherently favours liberal ideals. Whereas if you're an autocrat and you think that this technology threatens you, you think it's the beginning of something, which is the beginning of the general disruption of established politics. And we miss that. We miss. I mean, that. I think in the West we. I mean, we're only really woken up to it in the last couple of years, if we have at all. Exactly. And when, one, of the, one of the things that um, is really striking when you, when you think Trump... I, I was trying to think from their perspective, particularly uh, Putin, some of the senior Russian 
uh, government perspective in 2012-2013 when, you know, bear in mind, you know, in, in late 2011, there were the biggest demonstrations against Putin in Russia since the end of the Cold War. Um, 100,000 people uh, in the middle of Moscow demonstrating against Putin. So it was a real, genuine threat. This was not, this was not something that was just happening virtually. Um, and, uh, th- th- I mean, I think Putin was, was, was scared out of his wits. And, and what's now called, uh, uh, apparently falsely, the Gerasimov Doctrine, after General Gerasimov, who wrote in 2013 about um, hybrid warfare and the importance of using uh, techniques, uh, warfare techniques that included uh, information, that included communication, uh, which many people saw as Russia being very aggressive and deciding to take an aggressive stance. If you read it, you know, his speech fully and you read, you read around it, you realize that actually they thought they were being very defensive. They genuinely thought that lots of these American platforms were being used by the U.S. to advance its own power, to advance its own hegemony, and to, you know, to, to continue to expand NATO and some of the other more um, significant material um, uh, constraints on Russia. Okay, let's talk about those platforms. So let's talk about Facebook and Google and the others. So how, how complicit is Facebook in this story? So some people in Facebook see themselves as these kind of neutral arbiters. They're just the platform, and what happens on the platform is not their business. From the Russian perspective, Facebook is an arm of the American state. What's the truth? It's clearly neither of those things. Neither of those things. Well, I, I think um, at least up to 2012, there's a fair argument to be made that Facebook uh, was not... It, 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 it did participate in politics, but only in a very, very kind of... Uh, yeah, as part of... It just thought of politics as, as just another part of people's identity. You know, it was just like, you know, I love Manchester United, I, you know, I have a cat, I, you know, vote, whatever. You know, it was just, it was just part of your identity and therefore... Um, Therefore, monetizable throughout. The exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, what? And, and so, in that sense, you know, it's it was focused entirely on growth, entirely on growth. Um, what it didn't, it, you know, you can absolutely blame it for not thinking about the repercussions of becoming essentially the public square because it grew grew so phenomenally fast. You know, it's, it had reached a billion people by 2012, um, and in many countries, you know, by by 2014-15, um, it was synonymous with the internet. Um, uh, and certainly they did not think about the implications of that. But more than that, actually, if you... Facebook starts to look less uh, benign and less absentee uh, from about 2012 onwards. And 2012 onwards was when uh, uh, they made a decision, really for market reasons, they had their uh, uh, initial public offering in, in May of 2012, so they had to suddenly convince uh, investors that uh, they were going to make money, and they were going to make quite a lot of money. And from really 2012 onwards, they start creating a whole series of tools, um, advertising tools on the platform, um, that are incredibly powerful and become incredibly influential in political campaigns. Um, So I think from 2012 onwards, you know, there's a very good argument to be made that Facebook stops being such a sort of, uh, we're just a public space, we just want everyone to be open and connected, and becomes much more, actually, we'll give you the tools. And they didn't think of it as, I mean, they weren't thinking about politics. Most of these tools were, in fact, I think probably all these tools were, were, were created for commercial ends. They were so companies could advertise better and more powerfully, etc. Um, but very quickly, as soon as they're developed for, for businesses, they're adopted by political campaigns and used by political campaigns really, very, very effectively. Because there is a view that if you want to actually see what Facebook is, you have to enter the site as a prospective advertiser. So if you go in and uh, present yourself as someone to whom they can sell, not 
products through their advertising but sell their advertising methods, you will see that what they are offering is a kind of dashboard of human manipulation. Uh, it's, 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 I mean, the, the, what Facebook didn't realise and what um, they haven't even thought very much about was that you know, the, the, the famous advertising line, you, you know, you, um, you only know... You, 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 uh, only know a maximum of half of what's effective. You know, you know, you have to spend double because you know half of them will just disappear. Yeah. Now, what Facebook was trying to promise was that through by recording exactly how you respond to an ad, they were if you like, squaring that circle. So you could send out an ad, and you'd know if someone uh, uh, shared it, someone liked it, someone commented on it. You'd know so much more than advertisers had done in the past. Now. that sounded to them like a really useful commercial tool. What they didn't realize was someone like Brad Pascale, who was the digital director for Trump in the 2016 campaign, would would take that and he would um, uh, use machine intelligence to to fire 50 to 100,000 ads a day at different people and then use the, uh, uh, the machine intelligence to figure out which ones were getting through and which ones weren't and which ones were triggering re- which reaction and which ones weren't and then evolving them on that basis. So when you do that, I mean, that was the gesture you did for 4chan. So it's exactly. the same model, right? Exactly. It's the same model. It's incredibly 4chan. fast experimental. Exactly. And, and, and so, um, I mean, because th- th- this is the thing I think people misunderstand about an awful lot of this uh, advertising is that they think it's designed to persuade. It's not designed to persuade. You know, they're not trying to change your mind about something. They're trying to provoke a behavioral reaction. It's the same at 4chan. It's the same at um, Cambridge Analytica. They're trying to provoke a reaction, whether that reaction is a donation, uh, a click, and a share, um, uh, to volunteer, or, and most importantly, to vote or to not vote. Yeah. And that's critical. And that's the key, because... none of this really persuaded many Hillary voters that Donald Trump would be a good president of the United States. What they worked out how to trigger was people's likelihood to bother to vote or not. And people probably know this, Donald Trump won fewer votes than Mitt Romney. It's just that the Obama coalition did not turn out for Hillary Clinton because subsections of that coalition in particular... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Places above all. African-American men, young women, did not vote for Hillary. And that's the result Donald Trump is president. That's why it worked. Okay, so, so the book also has a really interesting set of uh, chapters about what might come next. So just going to quick, because we've got maybe 10 minutes before we take questions, just go through some of these. So one of the things that makes this book so interesting is that you speculate about something that you call platform democracy, which is where these platforms, whether it's Google or Facebook or Amazon, don't just become the public sphere where news happens. They become where everything happens. And that some of this is a dry run for much, much more ambitious agendas. So these people don't just want to be your news providers. They want to be your healthcare providers. They want to be your education providers. They actually want to replace the basic institutions of public life with their platforms. Is that or realistic? They want, or they want, us, they want us to go through them 
and therefore uh, to, our, to our public health services, to our public transportation. Right, so, you can't, so you can't get to these, these goods without having gone through that. So it's, it's effect, effectively, they become the gateway to all our public services. So, so um, a good example is, and, and this is why, in a way, I think probably we'll shift our focus away from Facebook in the near future, um, because uh, when you look at how some of the very big platforms are moving into healthcare, into education, into transport, into energy, um, you can see how um, that you start to see how they see the future, um, and how they seem to see the future is that you know we all have these constantly tracked lives. Um, that that uh, the data that is being tracked is is um, uh, uh, being analysed and then fed back to us so that we can live healthier lives. We can have more um, effective education uh, systems. This is this is all the benign way of looking at it. Um, we can have much better transport systems and devote our resources much better in transport. Um, and to give one example of the, the way it works is that, you know, the, uh, I don't know if anyone's wearing an Apple Watch here. Um, so the new, uh, the new Apple Watch, um, uh, for example, has uh, an electrocardiogram. Um, so it can, um, uh, uh, for, for people who have heart problems, it can, it can keep track of your heart and give you full warning. It also, of course, has the fitness tracker and everything else. Um, Apple's also um, lodged a patent for uh, the iPhone to be recognized as a medical device. Um, so the idea is that over time we will constantly track our health. Um, we will store our health data uh, within one of these platforms, um, Apple or Amazon or Google. Um, we will use apps from that platform to self-diagnose um, whatever's wrong with us. And then we'll decide whether, who, which of our health representatives will feed that data to. Um, so in a way, we start to become more and more reliant on the platform and the apps within that platform than we do necessarily on, on the state or on the kind of existing infrastructure. Um, and it's a similar picture in terms of education. It's, it's a similar picture in terms of transport. It's a similar picture in terms of energy. Um, so, so and the argument being that what we've relied on in the past is by the standards of Silicon Valley ridiculously inefficient. Well, I mean, one can see, you know, if... if and I think the, the important thing about uh, the age we're living through is it really, really is sort of um, utopia, dystopia, utopia, dystopia. And the way they see it, and there's a good argument to be made about aspects of this, is that by having all this data, you can make so much more informed decisions. You know, it's almost like being omniscient because, you know, if you have huge amounts of health data... I mean, one of the things that's a deep mind... I don't know if people are familiar with deep mind. Deep mind is a... Uh, it's actually a British company that was bought by Google um, and is at the forefront of developing artificial intelligence. Um, and in particular, it's uh, developing artificial intelligence in healthcare. Mm. And it's uh, collecting an awful lot of data about particular health problems so that it can identify um, uh, symptoms very early. Uh, and we discovered just a few months ago that they now appear to have figured out how to identify eye disease very early um, uh, using you know, all this data and the algorithms that they developed from it. Um, so, you know, uh, now if you are going to be, you know, suffering from eye disease and potentially going blind, the fact that DeepMind now has this algorithm and can, can, can identify that very early and potentially save your sight is a remarkable thing, a remarkable thing. Um, but of course, presumably over time, as each organization develops more intelligence and more algorithms, more algorithms and more artificial int- uh, intelligence, they then become the gateway. They then become, you know, you know, your route to early diagnosis or not. 
Um, and so these, they, they enhance their power really very significantly. DeepMind's mission statement is very simple. It says, one, solve intelligence, two, use that to solve everything else. And that's either the best idea you've ever heard or the most terrifying idea. I mean, there's not a lot between if that's your mission statement. So then there is a possibly, for many people, I think, something closer to a dystopia which is just around the corner and in some parts of the world which has arrived broadly comes under the heading of surveillance. Um, the Chinese model is probably the closest to it, which is where these giant tech platforms, and China has tech companies of a scale that match Silicon Valley, whether it's Alibaba or Baidu or whatever, are merged with the state. So actually on that model, it's not that there's a tension between the entrepreneurs and the disruptors and the sort of analog uh, public institutions. The two are one. Exactly. And that one is not that far off. In fact, some people would say it arrived a couple of years ago. Well, and I think we're at a very... Uh, in, in China. Very uh, unique moment um, where, you know, we, we being Britain, but other countries as well, could go either way uh, uh, or a different way or, or a third way. Um, but, you know, at the moment, for, for a long time, we've been sort of uh, blithely going, I think, the platform democracy route, where we've sort of let these companies take on more and more responsibilities and do more and more things. Um, uh, and now there's a huge political will to do something about these companies. Um, uh, uh, but, of course, if there's too much political will and the government intervenes too much and collaborates too much, then we do really do start to veer into an Orwell Huxley world, um, as, as you said, they have in China, where you know um, Alibaba, which is which is uh, I don't know if people are familiar with Alibaba, it's the equivalent of Amazon in in China, um, but in many ways bigger uh, than Amazon, or at least bigger in the sense of being more it's more involved, ubiquitous, more ubiquitous, more involved in people's lives. So most people pay via their phones using Alipay, um, and uh, they uh, they run. The, um, the experimental Chinese social credit system, um, which is a system where virtually everything you do is recorded, certainly all your purchases are recorded by Alibaba, uh, and then you, um, uh, uh, you are given a, a trustworthiness score. Um, so between about, I think it's between 350 and 950. Um, and depending on your trustworthiness score as a citizen, um, can have really material effects. It can on your affect life. whether you're allowed to travel, whether you're allowed yeah. to buy a train ticket, so. whether you can get a loan, whether you can. Um, and, and, and people, it's based partly as well on who your friends are. So you know, people are, are encouraged or discouraged from being friends with people who have a low trustworthiness score. Um, so your book, uh, so it doesn't. One of the things I like about it is it doesn't have a chapter at the end, which is kind of you describe all of these in deep intractable problems, and at the end you have the chapter, which is and the solution is dot dot dot. But uh, the last chapter is called Democracy Rehacked. Tell us. So the, the book is called Democracy Hacked, but tell us a bit more about well, what it, you mean, think is an alternative to these two slightly unattractive futures. I think one of the things that there's there's a couple of. Um, I think the first thing we need to do is, is sort of recognise and acknowledge the scale of this. And the scale of the change we're going through is, is, is pretty fundamental. I mean, the, uh, uh, Robert McChesney, the communications scholar, asked if this was the fourth uh, great communications transformation, um, the first three being the invention of language, the invention of writing, the invention of printing, uh, and whether this is the fourth change. And after each previous change, there has been huge social and political um, uh, 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 change uh, in its wake. Um, so I think you know, we have to first of all kind of acknowledge the scale of this, and there's no 
silver bullet. And, and one of the reasons I don't have a final chapter like that is because I worry that right now that's what lots of politicians and, and, and policymakers are looking for. They're saying, you know, how can we kill fake news? How can we, etc. And I think that's very dangerous because actually I think that will have lots of unintended repercussions. Um, uh, but then I also think we need to recognize that this is really a political as much as a technical, if more than a technological problem. You know, we have to have, and, and I don't know, I mean, I, if anyone here uh, has heard it, please tell me. I have not heard a politician set out a vision of where we want to get to. Um, I haven't heard someone say, this is where we want to be in five or ten years' time. You know, this is the kind of communications and, and, and information environment that we want to be in. This is how we want to deal with your data. This is how we want to think about public services in the future. That seems to me to be mostly absent right now. And until we have that, until we know, you know, at least at least an outline, a sketch of where we want to end up, then I don't think there's any way we're going to get towards it. Um, so I think uh, I think we need to sort of set, start to explore and set out what that should be, and then we can incrementally start to figure out how to get it's, there. It's part of the problem. I write about this a bit in my book that. Um, it's almost as though there is a default assumption that these problems must themselves, they're so complex, have technically complex solutions. And that politics, we lack the language, but we also sort of lack, lack the scope for thinking about what it would be. I mean, there's the classic problem that these are international, global, transnational problems and our politics is not that. The one institution that seemed to be thinking in some of these terms is the European Union, and we are not going to... We decided we don't want to play that game. Um, but it's partly also because it's either a technical solution or it's a bureaucratic solution. Or maybe it's a legal, international legal. But it's hard to kind of think of democratic politicians finding a language for this. It's almost as though they've bought into the Silicon Valley view, which is leave this to us. You know, this, is, mm. this is our domain. Your domain is this thing called politics, which we will disrupt and then we'll be, feel very sorry about it. But... Our domain is the technical solution to technical problems. And that does lead to the exactly. path you described. That's exactly the problem. I mean, I think that the problem is that many people think this, is, this, this technical problem has technical solutions. And so their inclination is to say, you take responsibility. Facebook, sort it out. Take responsibility for this. Google, take responsibility for YouTube. Of course, if they take responsibility, that empowers them even more. That gives them even greater ability to kind of say what is or what is not the truth, etc. So I think, you know, we have to absolutely kind of take back the political initiative and say, no, no, where do we want to be as a society? What do we want to, to how do we want to work as a society? And also recognize that, you know, the, the, the tools that they've produced have fundamentally changed the way in which people relate to politics and the way that people engage with politics and the way that people communicate politics. Um, and, and you have to recognize that in political systems. You, I don't think you can leave political systems as they are um, uh, when, and, and allow people to do so much around it because, because actually it's quicker or easier and more efficient and more effective to do stuff around it than mm. it is to actually do it through the existing systems. And it's probably also worth saying, we were talking about this a bit before, that, this, that the speed of this transformation, it hasn't just taken us by surprise, it's kind of taken Zuckerberg by surprise. You know, if, you, if you're Mark Zuckerberg 15 years ago and you're showing Mark Zuckerberg today, you'd have a complete nervous breakdown because you've gone from this college kid to potentially the most powerful... He looks like that, doesn't he? In, in, yeah. in the videos and stuff... And so the idea that we think, you, know, you, you broke it, you fix it, mm-hmm. some of them are as frightened as we are. And they've also... They've, they've been so focused. I mean, in, in Facebook's case, open and connected... They talk... In, in, uh, uh, when, when senior people talk at Facebook, they say that open and connected, which was their kind of ethos, was just a euphemism for growth. 
It was just growth, growth, growth. For, for a decade, all they were thinking about was growth, and that included how do we kill off our competitors? How do we kill off our... So, so it didn't even occur to Killer them. Kill them off or buy them. Exactly. <laughs> Subsume them within the Facebook realm. Um, so it didn't even really occur to them that these things would happen. I mean, when, when Zuckerberg you know, said, oh, it's a pretty crazy idea to think that you know, fake news could have influenced the U.S. election you know, uh, immediately after November um, 2016, uh, and then had to, to backtrack and sort of say... Well, and there was, there's a really interesting profile of Zuckerberg in The New Yorker from about a month ago. And it's, so here's this guy who, on the one hand, is clearly terrified and feels like he's created a monster he doesn't know how to control. And on the other hand, he's made three consequential decisions in his life where everyone told him he was wrong. So as a young man, he was offered a billion for Facebook and by Yahoo, and everyone told him to sell. And he, then he paid a billion for Instagram, and everyone said to him, you're crazy, and it's the greatest business investment in history. And then he went public with Facebook, and people said it will fail, and the, the, the share price has soared. So he thinks he's never wrong. And he and he and he's terrified. That's he, not a good combination. When he introduced the the Facebook newsfeed back in two thousand and seven, and there was huge backlash, and people were so angry. And he said, "This is the right thing to do. This is the right thing to do." And then uh, now it's thought of by many to be probably the most influential source of information in the world. So he's a genius, but right. Some some questions. I think we should start. People at the back always get a run. Does anyone? <laughs> no one at the back. Yes, we'll work our way. Okay. Um, if um, a lot of money is being spent on um, trying to persuade or nudge people to act in certain ways, how much of um, a problem in solving that problem is getting people to admit that they have been nudged? So that, I, I mean, I, I've read people say, no, well, um, people say I voted Brexit because. You know, I was told this, that, or the other. No, I didn't. I, you know, do you understand what I mean? That they, they, you have to. Ex- people would have to accept that they have been, as it were, daft enough to have been persuaded by these people. And just there's a variant of that, which is people often say, "I don't understand why there's so much money being made on advertising uh, online." I've never bought. You know, I've never been persuaded by these stupid Amazon ads that tell me I like those books. I don't want to buy those books. So there is this kind of inherent skepticism that people feel. Everyone else is really gullible. I think you're certainly, you're absolutely right. And that's why I, I keep banging on about this, this difference between persuasion and, and behavioral response. Because I think it's a bit like persuading someone. It's very hard to convince someone that they, I mean, you know, that, they, that their, their opinion can be changed, that some of the values that they have can be changed, mainly because it is very hard. It's very, very difficult. And I don't think it'll, it's certainly not going to be done in a tweet or in a, you know, a, a, a Facebook ad. Um, but if you can convince them that actually the reason they... I mean, the, um, uh, uh, the, 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 when, when, when they released... Um, uh, the Select Committee on Culture, Media and Sport released the whole, uh, a whole tranche of um, Vote Leave ads uh, a couple of months back, two or three months ago, um, the ones that really stuck out for me, because I, I sort of knew about some of the, the immigration ones and everything else, the ones that really stuck out for me were the animal cruelty ones. Um, uh, which I said, huh, I didn't know about those, and I didn't know why they... Uh, and they had um, a whaling one and a, I think a, a fox hunting one and a, and, um, a, a bullfighting one. Um, and the whaling one, what did it say? It said, it said, whaling is barbaric and unnecessary. Uh, 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 yes. So all they wanted you to do was agree that whaling was barbaric, uh, uh, whale hunting was barbaric and unnecessary. 
And so clearly there, the, you know, they're not trying to change anyone's view. They're not trying to, all they're trying to do is get someone to click because then they know. Then they know that that particular ad outrages them and then they can, you know, know okay, get them in the list that says, you know, worried about animal cruelty and stuff and start feeding them more ads that they can, they can suggest that the, the EU is going to uh, continue whaling, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think if we can convince people that they are um, susceptible to to being prodded and provoked to respond um, rather than persuaded, then we'll certainly get a long way there. And something similar happened in the 2017 election with Theresa May and the ivory trade, which was the most widely shared image among people who were thinking of voting Labour, which was an image of Theresa May and a dead elephant. Um, And that went completely under the radar. That image did not appear in any mainstream media or on on television, but it was one of the most important campaign images. And it was a Reddit thing that, right, I mean, it was that version of, I think. Well, it was, uh, Reddit? No. I don't think it was Reddit. Okay, yeah. Uh, still animals. Okay, we'd start from the back. Another way of getting at this question. Hang on, hang on. Sorry. Another way of getting at this question. What actual research evidence is there that looking at these images and platforms was the key variable that influenced people's votes? You're just assuming it was. Tell us what we actually so, know. So you're, you're absolutely right that you'll never know what made people vote as they vote in the, in the, um, uh, when they're in the privacy of the ballot box. Um, what we can see, and certainly what campaigns can well, see... Well, election surveys, surveys, surveys. Yes, but, 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 but I'm talking about correlating it back to specific information or specific um, ad or specific uh, communication. Um, what, we, what we do have, one of the reasons why Facebook is so interesting is because it has such an enormous sample size. <laughs> I mean, you know, if, they, if Facebook does an experiment, then it, 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 it is normally with, you know, um, millions rather than tens of thousands or, whatever, or even hundreds of people. Um, and Facebook has done quite a number of experiments, some of them which are open, some of them which are not, looking at what, uh, at how much of a reaction they can provoke to certain things. So in 2010, they, uh, they, they have the I Voted button. Are you familiar with the I Voted button? So uh, on, the ele- on election day, they put a little button on people's pages to say, uh, record that you voted, press this button. Uh, and in 2010, the midterms, 2010, they did a 61 million person experiment where they uh, 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 tested lots of different people to see what effect this button had on turnout. Um, and it had a statistically significant effect on increasing turnout. Well, if your fr- so if one of so your if friends one of your friends tells you they voted, you're more likely and, to vote. And, and, and you have the button on your screen, you are more likely to vote. So peer pressure um, uh, and then so that triggers you can people click to the go out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and similarly, if you look at the statistics in terms of when uh, uh, Facebook, particularly in the lead up to the US election, but elsewhere as well, has, has put up ads to um, enroll to vote, um, enrollment goes up Enormously, you know, in California, I think it went up by about 120,000 in, in, in 24 hours. So you can see, you can see very, very, you can correlate uh, very specific uh, political behavioral responses to particular triggers. But like I say, you can't say how someone's, you know, correlate a particular ad or a particular um, campaign with how someone ends up voting. But in the is it true that you can correlate? So. Famously, the American election was decided by roughly 100,000 people in three states, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, and I can't remember the other one. And that there are particular, they, they were very, very targeted advertising at 
districts. And you can see on a district by district level, can't you, some correlation between the volume of advertising and turnout. Not uh, whether people change their minds, but whether they turn well, out c- to vote. Certainly Brad Pascale says that he changed the strategy of the campaign when he saw some of the stats coming back from Wisconsin and Michigan and places and said, let's redirect a lot of our money to those particular areas, to digital ads, because he was in charge of digital ads, to those areas. Um, so they did focus much more on those areas. Um, and, you, you know, you've got, again, it's, 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 it's not possible to say uh, uh, how these people voted, but you had a three... Mi- uh, a three million greater turnout in the referendum than you did in um, the election the previous year. It seems to be the and case the highest, that different uh, cultures have very different approaches to data privacy, um, things they're happy to share with advertisers, marketers, and so forth. Do you think that by taking those uh, cultural approaches, one could potentially map out uh, a possible future for what? Politics and government and public life is going to look at look like in the future on a on a sort of global country country by country level. That's interesting. What, do, what can you give an example of the cultural differences you're thinking? Well, for of? example, I know that in Germany, people are much um, more reserved about the personal data that they're uh, willing to share. Um, in the U.S., people are, are very happy for all sorts of stuff to be shared. In the U.K., we hover somewhere in between. Um, recently there's been obviously the new GDPR rules theoretically gives people a lot more control about what happens with their personal data so in a culture like Germany people might, might take more, make, make more use of that control than we would perhaps in the UK where you just press yeah okay just get on with it um, just give me another pair of sneakers um, so I'm wondering if, if perhaps we can use that to very, in a very imprecise way to map out the effect that uh, online culture and online advertising and sort of under the radar nudging and persuasion is going to affect political life hmm. um, and political engagement moving forwards. Yeah, Sorry, it's pretty interesting. Uh, a very interesting thought. I hadn't thought of that before. I mean, what I what I do think you're absolutely right on is that um, we are seeing different models emerging. How? Mati- Exactly how material effect they'll have on, the, on, on our digital future, I'm not sure. But you know, the European model, which is called by some people the risk mitigation model of the GDPR, uh, is now quite distinctive from the American model in that sense. I mean, they, they really don't have anything like the, the protection that we do in Europe. Uh, and similarly, it's very, very different from the Chinese model, you know, where you have no privacy from the state. And you know, um, you know, they have data protection. They're worried about data protection in China and Singapore and places, but that's more because they want to for commerce and because they don't they want to d- decrease fraud, etc. The problem, I suppose, that I envision, and I can't really work my way around this, is that the way that the platforms, the, the way they normally succeed, is 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 because they start from the ground up. They enlist people. They, you know, uh, I don't know who here uses Waze. Waze, W-A-Z-E. So Waze is, a, is an app, very, very useful app, um, produced by Google, um, which is a sat-nav, uh, but it's a live sat-nav. And because so many people have downloaded Waze, it has live traffic. So it can tell you not just the quickest route as the crow flies, but it can show you the quickest route because of, you know, traffic problems and everything else. Um, uh, now... Waze is now, I think, five or so million people in the UK use Waze. And so uh, Waze and Google are now collaborating with TfL, they're collaborating with government, because they have more intelligence than most of the public authorities. Um, And they're collaborating with um, city authorities across America as well. 
Uh, and it's very difficult, I think, for authorities, by the time they've reached a certain point of the number of people have adopted something, for the, the authority to step in and say, you know what, actually we're going to put these restrictions on it and we're going to stop you doing this and stop you doing that. Because by then it's kind of too late. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of like you know, Amber Rudd saying we need a backdoor on WhatsApp. You know, you know it's, it's not going to happen. Um, so, so I think you know, you're, it's a really interesting idea to see how you can do it that way. But I suppose the difficulty is people, if people you know, in that commercial way vote with their feet and they, and they, and they go in that direction, it's very hard we got one. I just we got come to one last question. But is is there possibly a fourth model, which is an Indian model? I mean, we haven't talked about India. That is the, the other country on a scale that, if it had a different model, that one would really count. Is so there one? India claims it has a different model, and it's a really interesting and I think very well, sort of. A, I'm, I'm I'm very unsure as to how it will develop. But they, India uh, uh, back in 2009 actually, but it's really only come to sort of political saliency in the last year or so, introduced um, a digital, uh, sorry, a biometric identity system called Aadhaar. I don't know if anyone's heard of this. Aadhaar. So, so in India, uh, 1.2 billion people, which is I think well over 90% of the Indian population, now has a 12-digit number uh, which correlates to their iris and their fingerprints. And at every point at which they touch, almost, almost every point, at which they now touch government services, they have to provide that Aadhaar number and uh, uh, their iris scan or their fingerprints. Um, and they see this as a way to navigate between the European and the Chinese model. For me, I have to say, <laughs> it strikes me as a lot closer to the Chinese model than it does to the European and the American model. Um, but I think that's probably for a longer discussion. Okay, one last question here. Um, just an aside first, we were... Uh uh, conference a couple of months ago where Carol Cadwallader, who broke all the, all the Cambridge Analytica stuff, um, was interviewing Dominic Cummings, and he was explaining why nothing was going to happen now, they, now that they had all the evidence. And Carol, in complete exasperation, said, the one thing I wish in the world is that Mark Zuckerberg finished his college education. And, and the reason for that is that, he, that um, I mean, she was saying he doesn't really understand what he's doing, but a lot, a lot of the crowd that day didn't believe that because they think Mark Zuckerberg knows exactly what he's doing. In 2015, he was running around the country, uh, you know, ostensibly just to uh, you know, have a look at various parts of that. But he was, he was looking at whether he could run as president. So my question is, what will America look like when a tech guru runs America? Because he's got, you know, because that's clearly going to happen. And if it's not him, it's Peter Thiel. You know, it's someone from Google. No, but... <laughs> I, uh, uh, much as I hate to disagree, I actually don't think that he does want to be president. And I think the reason he doesn't want to be president is because I think he thinks he can be more effective and probably more powerful if he's not. Um, uh, uh, so one of the things I suggest in the book is that, is that uh, there could well be a point in the near future where changing your platform is more of more material significance to you than changing your government. Um, where if we go the platform democracy route and they take over more and more of our public services, essentially, essentially, um, and government sort of dwindles uh, in terms of its powers and its scope, and its, then actually, you know, shifting from you know <laughs> your Google Android to your Apple iOS might be uh, uh, not just a very big deal, but might have really substantial impact on on your healthcare, on your. Um, education on... Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's why, why, why I call for democracy rehacked. <laughs> it reminds me of the Boris Johnson's sister when she was asked, does, he, does your brother want to be prime minister? She said, no, he's much more ambitious than that. <laughs> um, it's a great book. You should buy it. You should read it. Join me in thanking Martin. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.